Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's 8 a.m. Pacific time on September the 18th, 2023. I'm so specific today on timing because timing is everything when it comes to publishing. Some books come out too early, some late, some just on time. I wonder whether today's uh, book, which we're talking about, Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier, has come out a bit late. It sounded as if Web3 was the next big tech thing a couple of years ago. Uh, but today, open AI and AI is changing everything. Uh, the author of, uh, of Web3, Alex Tapscott, who's made a name for himself and a business developing and writing about Web3, is joining us from uh, Toronto. Uh, Alex, I'm sure you've given some thought to this. I don't think it's an unfair question. Um, are you a bit late with Web3? Is it now... Uh, just a footnote to OpenAI and the AI revolution? Not at all. In fact, I view it completely uh, the opposite way around. So um, every so often, you know, new technology emerges that uh, that upends the, the economy and society in sort of, sort of profound and unexpected ways. And we've seen that before with many technologies. And we're, we're living in this period right now where there are several technologies all emerging at once. Um, OpenAI and artificial intelligence, which is changing, you know, human capability and what we thought machines were possible, uh, machine, what machines could do, um, the Internet of Things, you know, virtual reality and so forth. And one of those technologies is uh, blockchain technology, which to me is a new uh, medium for value that's going to change the nature of, of commerce. Now, what's interesting is that all of these technologies are not separate, but uh, related. And that's because the web and with it, the Internet are entering this new era and bringing about what I think is kind of a new platform for this new digital age. So in much the same way that the term internet has expanded from its very sort of narrow original meaning of a set of internetworking technologies to encompass a much broader set of business models, technologies, and societal changes, I think so too is the term Web3 evolving to describe a, a new era that is composed of a group of technologies. And the technologies that are foundational to this new internet are blockchains, AI, the Internet of Things, and extended reality. In my opinion, we'll look back at this moment in time as the beginning of the Web3 era. And the Web3 era will be defined by the convergence of these different technologies, not them all operating independently. Uh, you've written before about uh, blockchain uh, technology. You're the co-author with your father, Don Tapscott, who's an old friend of mine, has been on the show many times, The uh, Blockchain Revolution. If we're to talk about Web3, um, Alex, we need to get our ducks in order. Obviously, Web3 comes out of Web 2.0 and then perhaps mm -hmm. Web 1. So give us a history lesson. What exactly is Web3? Sure. Well, as you said, let's start from the very beginning. So Web 1 was the, the early web, um, the web of the 1990s, where information was largely presented on static websites. Um, the, the dot com era is, I think, how most people remember that. Web 2, which began, I would say, sort of in the early to mid 2000s, um, introduced a number of other sort of things interactive elements, hypertext, collaborative apps, social media, and the rise of some very large platforms, companies like Google and Facebook. Web 2, 
um, was a big breakthrough and, and I think overall um, had a lot of positive impact on the world, right? It brought about sort of huge economic gains. Uh, it connected billions of people who weren't previously connected to the web and in, in some important ways helped to amplify marginalized voices because Web2 kind of turned everyone into a publisher of information. But Web2 had some very big downsides because basically um, we had to rely on user-generated content as a source of um, revenue, advertising became the web's primary business model. And because of that, recommendation engines were programmed to keep people hooked. And that meant um, a rise in misinformation or disinformation and extremism. Uh, big Web2 companies got so powerful that they actually became choke points for government surveillance. And this is especially true in um, places like China. Uh, we saw how Web2... What do you mean places like China? There's nowhere else like China, is it? That's a good point. <laughs> there, are, there are other countries in the world where the government... I, I, I mean, China is in parallel. I mean, China didn't have Web2. Oh, well, okay. I would argue that uh, a lot of companies, you know, um, like Baidu, WeChat, Tencent, these kinds of platforms, in many respects, did a lot of what Web2 companies do in, in the United okay, States. Fair, fair enough, right. Right. Yeah, that's a Social point. media, messaging, payments, like all the rest of it. So in many respects, um, that, that was the case in China. Um, and I think one of the other things, too, is that sort of became a winner-take-all model where natural monopolies formed in different parts of the economy. And in some cases, that's you know, bad for consumers, but in other ways, it's sort of bad for innovation and entrepreneurship overall. The fact that there, we have a duopoly in the app store means that developers and um, other businesses have to pay, you know, pretty prohibitive tax in order to just do business. So now the internet and with it, the web are entering this new era known as Web3. Web3 is often referred to as the read, write, own web, uh, with own being the operative word. This new web puts users in control with ownership of data, ownership of assets and ownership of creative works and empowers them with a new toolkit that allows them to transact and, and do business peer to peer. And that's something that we never had before. The first eras of the web were, were important and, and meaningful, but fundamentally they were a medium for information. They were not a medium for value. And now we have a new economic layer on the web that allows us to take everything that worked well for information and apply it to things that have value. And that can include lots of different things, including data that's unique to our identity, but also just regular stuff like. Financial. Yeah, we're going to get to the details, Alex, but I have to admit, I'm enormously skeptical of these promises. I've heard them time and time again. This is the third time we've heard these promises of democracy. Technology is going to be put in the hands of the user. You're critical of Web2, but um, many, many supporters peddlers perhaps of the web 2 revolution used exactly the same language back in 2000 2005 in fact i used to get involved in all sorts of debates with your father on this what why is web 3 any different why shouldn't it be a, a new world where you have a winner take all um, economy a tiny group of enormously powerful dominant companies and a new class of multi-billionaire entrepreneurs what's different about it hmm i love that question um, and it's something that, that I've frankly wrestled with a lot in, in my own writing and research for the book, because like technology doesn't have moral agency. Um, you know, technology is not good or bad. It's just a tool. And uh, Web3 and the, the technologies that make it possible are just tools. And so they can be wielded for good or bad. Um, I think that there's a lot about this technology 
that does empower individuals. Being able to own and control your own assets uh, or to be an owner of the services and platforms that you use or being able to access financial services when, no, when none were previously possible or being able to you know, keep your identity and data private. I mean, those are things that I think are, are things that empower individuals at the expense of, of intermediaries. So I do think that there are some components here that are just fundamentally different than what's come before. But at the same time, Lots of people have gotten very wealthy in Web3. There have been some very successful projects and companies that have got built that have that have enriched a few individuals and not everybody. So, um, you know, in the end, like it's the future is not something to be uh, predicted, uh, though that is seems to be the business that I'm in a lot of the time. Um, it's something to be to be achieved. And, um, you know, in the book that uh, that I wrote, I, I spoke to dozens of people, I think over 50 interviews in total. Um, and they say, you know, if you're the smartest person in the room, find another room. Well, that's never been my problem. Every time I enter a room with somebody who's building something in Web3, I'm often taken aback by the breadth of understanding and their passion. So you're right. I don't know. The, I can't predict whether or not um, this will replicate the model that came before. But I think inherent in the technology, a lot of things are going to make that difficult. Shouldn't you, though, Alex, as a, a respected author and consultant, shouldn't you be making that clear up front rather than making all these unverifiable and, and, and sometimes rather absurd promises. Shouldn't, well, what, we, shouldn't we enter this revolution? You're right, of course, it is a new revolution, although I wouldn't call it Web3. I mean, you're, you're putting everything but the kitchen sink into Web3. I'm not sure AI is really a piece of the Web3 uh, revolution. But in, in any event, Rather than describing this as so much full of potential, suddenly we own everything and now you can't have dominant companies, shouldn't we be entering this new period with a degree of skepticism? And indeed, um, even, even some of the, the entrepreneurs, the CEOs and founders of these new companies are a little nervous and skeptical given all the failures of the past. Well, I think that's a, a valid point. I think it's an interesting um, sort of jumping off point to, for a bigger conversation, which is that we're in this moment right now where I think people are kind of tired about hearing new or hearing about new technologies. I mean, what is the legacy of Web2 and, and the technology revolutions that we've seen over the last 15 years? Well, I think there's a lot of it's broadly positive. And there's a lot about Web2 that I love, obviously. You know, the internet's great. Um, but there we are- We wouldn't be doing this without Web2. Well, exactly. Um, and But there are lots of things that I think people are concerned about. You know, they're concerned about the fragmentation of social discourse. They're concerned about privacy. They're concerned about kids spending too much time online. They're worried about, you know, extremism and so forth. And I think that um, when you come along with something new and say, well, here's something that you should care about. I think a lot of people are like this, this old story again. I mean, I think even, um, you know, people can debate whether or not AI and Web3, what the relationship is. I personally think that it's a technology that's foundational to the future of the internet. And so when you think about a term to describe that, it's a useful way of thinking about it. But even if you don't buy into that premise uh, or think it's absurd, um, you know, I think a lot of people are concerned about AI too, that this is a technology that's- Oh, absolutely. I'm not claiming that AI, AI is- uh, Well, but- But, but you know, right. even, even Sam Altman acknowledges that AI- can be used in a, in a very destructive way. And he's as nervous about it as anybody else. Yeah. Well, um, so in, in the book, like right in the introduction, I talk about um, a lot of the concerns and issues um, with new technologies, including the technologies that make Web3 possible. So um, for anyone who reads reads the book, I think you'll find that it's a, it's a pretty, a hopefully, um, like a thoughtful, well-balanced well um, analysis of 
just what's going on in the world, right? Um, I, I try not to be Pollyannish. You know, I think a lot of people who write books about technology have to be up. Not they don't have to be optimistic, but I think it certainly helps. Like, why why spend a whole year writing a book about something unless you felt that it could maybe make a difference and hopefully a positive difference in the world? So like that's what drove me to to take on the project. But I readily acknowledge that there are plenty of things that could go wrong. In fact. Well, um, they already have, Alex. Uh, well, I, I well, want to get after the break to to more detailed analysis from you of what exactly Web three is. But a lot of people associate Web three with crypto, and, and there is a, an intimate connection between the two and blockchain. Uh, the 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 disasters of, of crypto remain all about us. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried scam and many others. Um, so, to what extent? Is Web3 already tarnished in, 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 in the eyes of many analysts, in your view? I mean, are we at a point where it got put on the shelf and it already went rotten in a few days? Hmm. Which is the case often with new technology. It has a very short shelf life. Hmm. Well, let me answer that question um, in two ways. I, I think that for a lot of people um, on the outside looking in, uh, a lot of new technologies can seem like overnight success stories. In, a, in actuality, they're often decades in the making. And AI is a really good example of that. You know, um, there was AI research in the 1960s that claimed that within two decades, uh, all human functionality would be you know, done by computers and AI. And obviously that didn't happen. And we went through plenty of, of winters and periods of disillusionment with AI, as we have with frankly, almost every new technology that's sort of hitting its stride at this exact moment. We saw that with, you know, virtual reality and augmented reality. We've been through hype cycles, um, even, ro you know, robots and self-driving cars. Um, and so in a way, I think that... What do you mean even self? I mean, where I'm in San Francisco, the streets are, are full of self-driving That's my cars. point. That's exactly my point. So even, so self-driving cars are one of those things where a decade ago, Everyone was talking about within a decade, you know, every car would have self-driving functionality. And that didn't happen as a result of that. It didn't happen within that period. And as a result of that, people kind of forgot about it. But what the actual reality is, what's happening in places like San Francisco, is that um, it's a technology whose time has kind of come, right? Or at least where the it's now actually hit that inflection point. And I feel like there's a lot of, of different technologies that are in a similar boat. But I want to address specifically head on what you mentioned, which is the collapse of FTX and the wrongdoing of specific individuals. So in the book, I say, you know, that basically the collapse of FTX and some of these other companies have been used by, by critics of the book, or uh, excuse me, well, that's a Freudian slip, critics of, yeah. of, the, uh, of the industry, <laughs> critics of the industry, um, to point out what's wrong with this technology, right? That it gives new ways for speculators to gamble. It creates new ways for criminals to avoid law enforcement and so forth. And look, I mean, those are issues we should explore and, and unpack carefully, not dismiss. But in my opinion, um, when the CEO of a company uses his company to commit fraud, we blame the wrongdoings of the company on the failure of its leaders, not on how they wielded any specific technology. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Number two, um, which is that, a lot of new technologies have failures in the early days, um, catastrophic failures. Uh, and sometimes that doesn't matter. You know, like um, a lot of coal mines collapsed during the early steam age and a lot of railroads derailed. But railroads and steam engines kept on chugging because the underlying technology um, and the transformations that they wrought was just too powerful. 
There are other technologies, however, that have held immense problems promise, maybe even more promise than things like, like coal and steam engines, um, like nuclear power, for example. You know, if, if we had widespread nuclear power operations, um, we could basically reduce the carbon footprint by about two thirds, right, of the world. Uh, but what happened in the 1970s and 80s was two, two consecutive disasters, the Three Mile Island disaster and the Chernobyl disaster. And the Chernobyl, like nuclear power plants, some get got commissioned after that, but the wave of building really kind of stopped after that point in time. And now, you know, even in places like Germany, you know, they're being decommissioned as the price of gas goes up because of Russian, um, you know, antagonism. So is was basically what I'm saying is was FTX Web 3's Chernobyl, right? Or was it the first of a couple of, you know, derailments that set it back, but maybe um, didn't imperil it. And that's something that like, you have to think just to put, put this in context, you know, I began writing this book in, um, June of last year, June of 2022. So right in the middle of the book, I'm about to submit my first draft to my publisher, Harper Collins. And, uh, this, this whole thing goes, uh, goes down. And so really like that event helped to inform a lot of my thinking around the subject, which is that does it, does it matter that, you know, I believe that these technologies are really useful or that I think they could solve some problems when this disaster might just cause, you know, imperil this industry for good, right? Um, and the conclusion I came down to was that it was a big setback, but it was it was an, sort of more of a derailment than it was a cataclysmic disaster. And I still believe that, but it's not for me to decide if that's true. Um, it's for us to all watch and, and see, right? So, um, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we certainly will. And Alex Tapscott is one of our leading futurists. He has a new book out, Web3, charting the Internet's next economic and cultural frontier. I want to take a short break, uh, Alex. And then after the break, I want to talk more concretely about what exactly Web3 is, talk about blockchain, NFTs, and, 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 and uh, its decentralized or supposedly decentralized nature. I'm going to take a short break. Uh, I'm going to remind everyone that this show is backed by uh, Liberties Quarterly, a, a wonderful new publication about culture and politics. Going to run a short ad. And then we'll be back with Alex Tapscott to talk more about Web3, the next big thing, supposedly, at least according to Alex, in tech. <laughs> Hold on in a second. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. You can check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. You can also subscribe. We are talking with Alex Tapscott, the author of Web3. So, Alex, as I said, you're also the co-author of Blockchain Revolution. Would it be fair to say that in terms of thinking about Web3, or at least in terms of how you define it, blockchain is the technological foundation, the plumbing to this new world? Yeah, certainly the the first technology of Web3. Um, and I think the thing that without it wouldn't be possible. And explain to some listeners who are still confused with what exactly blockchain is. Why is it so significant? What does it mean? Yeah, sure. So uh, blockchains are basically the first uh, digital medium for value. So what that means basically is that they're a way 
for um, to create scarcity in digital goods. So the first era of the internet that encompasses, encompasses web one and web two, uh, transformed a lot of different industries, publishing, media, you know, um, how we consume content, search, and so forth. But it didn't have as big an impact on financial services and on value-based industries. Because when you use the web to send something of information, like if I send you PowerPoint presentation or an email, I can send the same thing to someone else, right? Now, for most kinds of information, that's okay. It's like we have a printing press for information. And, you know, like the first era of the printing press, the web printing press was very impactful. But when it comes to things that have value, things like, say, money or assets or, you know, art or IP, being able to create copies of something is actually problematic. Because if I owe you money for something, it's important that when you receive it, you know you have the only version. I can't send the same exact money, the same dollar to someone else. Because if I can create copies of assets the way I can copy information, the money or assets become worthless. So blockchains are a way to basically program scarcity into digital goods. So it's a way to create digital assets. Now, one of the big innovations of Web3... Uh, hold on, let me just jump in, uh, Alex. Yeah. If we can... I mean, the, the promise of the internet and perhaps its peril is it's especially on the creative front is the ability to create infinite copies of texts and videos. Yeah. Why does blockchain give value to that? I mean, if, if at the click of a, bar, a click of a mouse, you can replicate anything, including your book. What, why does blockchain is blockchain protecting that or is it? creating a new value system. It's never been entirely clear to me. Well, it certainly depends on the kind of asset, right? So something like, you know, money or a share of a company or, you know, um, you know, uh, some other security or some asset that can only exist in one place, you cannot copy that. Like if I have a dollar, you can't copy the dollar. Um, if I have a book, you could copy the book. Um, and obviously, the blockchains don't prevent people from using the web to make copies of, of anything um, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but what they do do is they give you a way to um, create scarcity in certain kinds of digital assets. So um, in the case of, say, art and collectibles, there are a lot of people who use NFTs, um, as you pointed out in your segue, to basically create originals of their work. Um, and that's led to um, over 300 different creative projects earning at least a million dollars of royalties, for example. Yeah, but there's been a collapse in the. We've done a number of shows on NFTs, Alex, and there's that was the the classic boom bust economy where for a few, few weeks people were spending ridiculous amounts of money on on NFTs, and now the market's collapsed completely. Well, in the book, I'm very careful to distinguish between like recommending any specific NFT project and talking about what the technology is capable of. Right. I mean, just because somebody overpaid for some piece of artwork, which proved to be worthless, doesn't mean that the idea of how we move and store value digitally is invalidated. So those are two different things. Well, explain. I don't agree with that because the this technology got tried. And in my view, at least it failed. I mean, we haven't heard much about NFTs. Now, give me an ideal a case example of how NFTs could work in the future to to revalue our economy in the digital age? Well, one of the things that we talk about in the book is how um, NFTs and, and tokens more generally are being used to uh, fund creative ventures, especially creative ventures where um, the creators might not have access to capital otherwise. And so, for example, um, we talk a lot about the video game industry in the Philippines, where uh, I was just in the Philippines last week. Yeah. Well, so the Philippines is actually really well known as um, one of the sort of leading 
places where studios outsource development because they've got tons of you know very talented video game developers but the actual local indie uh, gaming um, ecosystem is is kind of underdeveloped and that's because to develop a game takes a lot of resources right and they may not have access to the same kind of vcs or studio money that uh, video game developers in places like the united states might have so what a lot of projects have done is um sell, sold um in-game assets so virtual goods that can be used as part of the gameplay uh, to users as a way to fund their development now um that's not something that that needs to be proven by the way so people already spend tens of billions of dollars on virtual goods that they don't actually own that's the strangest thing about gaming today is that projects like roblox and fortnite um users are routinely spending billions of dollars but they don't actually own and custody those goods so anyway the point is that the idea that people will spend money on in-game assets as a way to enhance their experience is something that's been around for decades. are you saying then that the best case example of nfts is what's happening in the philippines with gaming is that your best case i'm giving you uh, one good example from the book that we spent a lot of time talking to founders who are doing this um there's another uh, i can give you lots of others obviously but the idea is that you can use this as a way to fund creative ventures um as what does a way that mean used to to fund creative ventures i mean you you wrote this book it was funded by harper collins yeah they paid you up front and you wrote the book sure it's different about blockchain what, what what is it about the web 3 supposed revolution that will enable a different model for funding creative projects well as i said so if you need to raise you know a million dollars to fund the development of a game where part of the gameplay is the ownership of digital goods um, and the ability to do transactions in that game then you can pre-sell assets, which are going to be part of the gameplay, to your users as a way to fund its development. It's basically a form of crowdsourcing, but where instead of owning, you know, being able to get a T-shirt or something that says "I supported something," you're actually getting an asset which is going to be useful for the application that you're um, that you're actually participating in. So, I mean, that's a, to me that's a pretty clear example of, of this technology. There are lots of others. Um, uh, lots of other examples like that by the way it's not just in the philippines there are companies all around the world and projects that are doing something similar i raised the example of the philippines because to me it's a classic example of how these tools are helping to sort of flatten the world a bit more giving opportunity to people where previously they didn't have it well that's the old language alex i've heard it before i'm very dubious flattening i, I mean i'm not sure how much time you've spent in the philippines i was there last week with my friend maria ressa it's in a profoundly unequal society, and 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 a, a, and it's the least flat place I think I've ever been. So, yeah, well, that would be why it's one of the top ranked countries in the world for Web three adoption. Which, by the way, like let's be clear, like Web three is not making a difference today for the lives of 150 million people in the Philippines. But what it does do is give people a way to connect online with a new toolkit. So if the first era of the web allowed people to move and share information and publish and so forth, this is a toolkit that allows them to move and store value and to earn money in ways that weren't possible before. But, but, what, you're, but what you're describing in the Philippines, for example, is the ability for a game, for somebody to invest in a, in a game company, to own a, a piece of the action. I mean, as you say, it's not that different from Web 2, is it? It's just that, that the proof of ownership would be stored in nfts which would supposedly exist on the blockchain well it's the exact, it's revolution. It's the exact opposite actually rather than um the funds coming from a company which controls distribution and controls the rules of the game and controls the assets and whether or not they have value you've got it happening from the ground up <laughs> being funded by the users themselves and by the way just because the game developers in the philippines doesn't mean these people who are 
participating in this are in the Philippines. They've been all they they would be all around the world. Um, I mean, look, like as I said in my in my opening remarks, you know, um, technology is just a tool. Like I'm trying not to be like a techno utopian, but I am pointing out that there's like dozens of examples where this technology has helped to um, make it easier for people to to connect uh, financially, to own assets, to you know uh, build wealth. Like that's that's a reality of Web three. Um, and it's, well, it's built well for themselves. So you've given this Philippine example. Okay, I, 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 it's, it's hard for me to comment. I don't know enough about it. But give me an example from you're in Canada, from Canada or United States, where Web3 has had a significant impact um, on users, on investors. What, what is the best case company in the US, for example, for Web3. I know you you write about Decentraland, but these companies seem very small and very niche-like at the moment. Well, one example that's being used by a lot of people in the US and Canada and everywhere around the world, um, by some estimates, 400 million people are stable coins. So stable coins are digital assets that are backed by US dollars. And they're part of a, a subset of a bigger category of tokens backed by what are called the real world assets. So tokens, which is another important part of the Web3 story, um, are basically just containers for value. So they can contain anything of value, whether that's money or stocks or bonds or art collectibles or you know, share in a new video game venture or whatever, right? Um, they're programmable uh, software in the same way that a website is a programmable you know, container for information. And so one of the most um, clear examples of where this technology is having a ton of success is um, US dollar based stable coins. So to my earlier point, um, there are lots of people in the world who would love a way to move and store dollars digitally because they don't have a bank account or the local currency is um, you know, unreliable or the local financial system is underdeveloped or the government is corrupt and so on and so forth. And stable coins are a way to do that. Um, so right now there's over $130 billion of circulating supply in stable coins. Um, stable coin transaction volumes just on the Ethereum network alone are in the trillions of dollars. And they're not just being used for uh, transactions between people buying and selling crypto assets. They're increasingly used as a medium of exchange between businesses and individuals. PayPal, for example, two weeks ago, just announced the launch of its own. Um, yeah, but PayPal is yesterday's company. Your book comes with a. I mean, I mean, the the premise of all is I that. I mean, that kind of, that PayPal is a company I mean, <laughs> whose stock, a company whose, if not in free fall, certainly the, the stock was worth what three hundred dollars. Well, Visa is at an all time. So Visa is at an all time high, as is Mastercard, and Visa just announced that they're enabling merchant settlements and stable coins using the Solana blockchain. So what about that one? What about Mastercard, also at an all time high, four hundred sixteen dollars? Yeah, but not um, because yeah. of their use of stable coin. Well, listen, man. Like, let's come back I mean, to this. Like, stable. it's either it's either it isn't or it isn't. It is or it isn't. I mean, like, you know, these are all examples. Well, but but, but coming like, back to let, let's talk about stable coin. <laughs> you know, you you talk fast, Alex, on this stuff, and I don't entirely understand. How is that changing? People can exchange dollars in any way they want. They can buy and sell dollars on the currency exchange. What does stablecoin do that doesn't suggest either the dark web or some sort of scam? We, we did a show with, uh, and I'm sure you're familiar with this book. It's, it's on the long list for the Financial Times book of the year. Uh, Tokens, the Future of Money in the Age of the Platform by Rachel O'Dwyer, an Irish-based writer. She suggests, or I thought she at least suggested in our conversation, that the whole thing, if not, is a scam, is a, is, is a sophisticated marketing operation. 
Uh, and it's happened before in history. It happened in the 19th century, rethinking the idea of value. What, what exactly, how does stable coins change anyone's life when you can just buy and sell dollars on the market if you choose to? Yeah, well, that's a very North American-centric point of view. Why is that North American? Oh, I mean, you can yeah. buy and sell dollars into the Philippines or in Africa. Can you can you store dollars yourself and move them peer to peer for zero transaction fees? You know, the average fees for remittances between like if you want to buy dollars and someone sends you dollars from a place like the United States, according to the World Bank, it's nine percent average remittance fees. It takes a week to settle those transactions. I know this firsthand. There's the Filipino diaspora, not to focus on the Philippines, but the Filipino diaspora in Toronto, where I live, is bigger than almost anywhere else in the world. And this is a problem that, that's faced by lots of people. So what stablecoins do is basically just give people a way to move and store value in dollars peer-to-peer -peer digitally, just as the internet gave them a way to move and store. And what's the business model? Because these things always, whenever it's free, there's always a catch. So, so Yeah, but there is a business model. See, the thing is like, I'm happy to explain it to you. Do you want me to explain the business? Yeah, absolutely. Great. So someone who wants to use a stable coin and wants to use it as a payment tool, they're not expecting some rate of return for using that stable coin. That would be different than, say, like a bank account. Like if you put your money in a bank account, you might hope that the bank pays you some interest for your deposits, right? So with stable coin issuers, the way that they make money is that every time stable coins are created which is where someone sends money to a stablecoin issuer in exchange for the stablecoin. They take the reserves, which are held in real world assets, and they're able to invest it. Now, a few years ago, the returns that they could have earned would be negligible because uh, interest rates were in a sort of 0% environment. But today, US dollar bonds, risk-free assets, according to financial, you know, um, like according to traditional financial sort of um, analysis, um, earn like four to 5%. So if you're a stablecoin issuer and you have $10 billion of circulating supply, everyone's using that stablecoin as a medium of exchange, as a tool for payments, but you've got $10 billion, which you're able to invest um, fully collateralized into like US dollar bonds, right? Which could earn you like 4%. So companies like Circle uh, and Tether and obviously PayPal is really interested in this because it's a business model that it's more lucrative um, than the existing payments business. But from the end user's perspective, it's actually a way to do things cheaper and faster and to do them globally. Like uh, PayPal, you, know, you raised that PayPal is a company that's yesterday's business. In a way, I kind of agree with you. I mean, this is a company that whose button has lived on merchants for a long, long time. It's been the only game in town. And now you've got you know, um, Stripe and Square and Shopify and Apple Pay and all these other competitors who are, com who are looking to take away market share. So in their legacy business, they are clearly under pressure. And that's why over the last year, PayPal's revenue on its payments button hasn't grown at all, right? But stablecoins offer a way to take their business and expand it into places where they haven't previously operated to target customers that maybe they weren't, um, you know, maximizing and to earn money in the process. It's not a scam. It's just basic mathematics. It's like if you've got $10 billion of collateral and you're issuing a stablecoin against it, you can invest in a bond. Simple. It's like it's just like a basic banking model. It's so easy to, to understand, um, you know, that that I think that people who just dismiss the stuff as scams are just intellectually lazy and haven't done this, you know, bother to spend like, I don't know, like five minutes. Yeah, I Bloomberg, think that's a, a Bloomberg, point, a Bloomberg yeah. article. Like right. you could read an article in the Financial Times about how a stablecoin works and be like, oh, OK, that makes sense. This isn't a scam. I just had to read literally one article. Oh, never mind. <laughs> well, I, I take your point. I think that's a fair point. On the other hand, and, you know, I, you probably will argue I can't have it both ways, but I'm trying. I can tell. <laughs> Is this really... I mean, even if stable coins for real, which sounds like a, 
if not a technicality, a new way of trading currency. Um, is this really the Internet's next economic and cultural frontier? Is this as profound as you're suggesting? Well, time will tell, right? Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't have a crystal ball any, any more than the next person. I'm just trying to call it like an ump, you know, as I see it. Um, I will say this, which is that I personally believe it's the next frontier. And I think that the, the, the choice of the term frontier in the subtitle of my book um, was, was really intentional because, you know, frontiers um, attract business people and homesteaders and uh, savvy entrepreneurs, but they also attract crooks and hustlers and criminals and the rest of it, right? And, um, you know, I think in history, we've seen frontiers be the, 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 the meeting point, a clash of cultures and paradigms and old and new. And I think that um, in order for this frontier to fulfill its potential, you know, we need different kinds of organizations. You need governments and regulators setting the conditions for people to stake their claim on the frontier, to enforce the rule of law. You need uh, businesses and you need transportation arteries to get things to and from the frontier. And you need people who are willing to pick up either driven by, you know, personal gain or by economic circumstances or out of curiosity or passion to like actually go hit the dusty trail. And, um, you know, I think that this frontier, what's interesting about it, what makes it special in my mind, is that unlike a physical frontier, which is contained geographically, um, you know, a, a digital frontier is potentially boundless. Uh, it doesn't mean there's infinite potential. It just means that there's there's room for, for everybody um, on the frontier. Uh, as I said, I mean, we've heard that one with Web 1 and 2. What about, uh, it seems to me, Alex, that the most interesting piece of Web 3 yeah. talked about is decentralization more broadly, this notion of DAOs, perhaps you might talk about them and how Web3, in theory at least, offers a new technological architecture for the organization of things, of companies, of people, yeah. perhaps even of nations. What is a DAO and what is it? how is it connected with Web3? Hmm. Well, I wouldn't say nations at, the, at this point. Um, you know, I think that or the communities, death, at least the death of the nation state is, uh, is over exaggerated at this point. Um, I, I, I think that what's interesting about um, DAOs, DAOs, is that they um, enable sort of new ways to organize people and assets and capability that that wasn't previously possible with a company. Perhaps you might sure. tell everyone what a DA sure. what it stands so a DAO for. stands for a distributed autonomous organization. And basically all it is, is a digitally native organization that is owned and governed by token holders rather than stockholders. So it's similar to a company in a lot of respects. Uh, the term autonomous, I think, is a bit of a confusing one and a misnomer. It doesn't mean that it operates independently, though it could eventually with AI and so forth. But there are still human beings involved in the uh, governance and management of, of these organizations. And basically, they're, they're a way to um, easily incentivize um, users, developers, contributors to participate in a network. And that network can do anything. It can be do something similar to a corporation. So I'll give you a specific example. So within Web3, the financial sort of sector of Web3 is a thing called DeFi or decentralized finance. And um, there are plenty of um, really interesting examples of projects in DeFi that um, use tokens as an incentive to attract people to use the platform. And, you know, incentives are nothing new. People used to, you know, pay for referrals to websites and so forth back in the 90s. Um, but the difference here is that the token that you're earning actually gives you an economic stake 
uh, and a say in the governance of the thing that you're using. And that's something that's really interesting because Silicon Valley has known this for decades, that if you want to attract the best people, you got to give them ownership. But if you wanted to launch a new software application and give users and um, contributors ownership today and do it in 50 different countries, you couldn't do that. It just wouldn't be possible. You'd have to be doing options and RSU agreements in a dozen different languages in 50 different countries. But tokens are an easy way to do that. So if you use the application, you contribute to it in some way, you can earn tokens as a result. So I think that for a lot of digitally native organizations, like so software companies and so forth, this is a very kind of creative uh, new toolkit that can be used to, um, to drive the best people and to drive users to, uh, to your platform very easily in a way that just was not possible before. Finally, Alex, let's come back to AI. At the beginning, you suggested that AI was a piece of this. How is AI connected with tokens and DAOs? Isn't it a separate category? Doesn't it exist in parallel? Uh, yeah, it does. I mean, so AI is different from DAOs and tokens, to be sure. Um, but I view uh, AI as one of the handful of technologies that is helping to sort of reshape the, the world that we live in. And there are lots of really interesting examples of how... Um, how blockchain and AI work together to help fulfill the, the vision of Web3, at least that I see it. You know, so classic examples like right now, you're in California. Right now, there's this big writer strike um, where ACTRA and the other unions are basically fighting for a new collective bargaining agreement. Part of that is they're worried about the use of their likeness and their IP and their content in large language models. Um, and there's a solution inherent in that um, dilemma that doesn't involve just new regulation or a new, you know, agreement between artists and, and uh, studios. And that's if you're able to use tokens as a way to put a signature, a digital signature on IP and other things um, that creators create, then you, you have an easier way of tracing and tracking how that IP is used for some monetary benefit, right? And you can pay the original creator. Now that still requires companies and people to opt into the system, but it's something that we know already works in the world of Web3. So um, it doesn't exist right now in Hollywood, but it does exist in Web3. So there are over 300 projects, Web3-based art creative ventures, and this is not a comment on their artistic worth or their financial worth. I'm just saying there are 300 projects that have each made over a million dollars of residual royalties from the resale of assets um, from one person to the next. So if you're a creator, you sell a piece of art for $5 and someone buys it for a million dollars, you typically don't make any money on the million dollar sale. But with digital assets, you can program them so that you can create that kind of value stream. The same can be done um, for Hollywood and for the writers. So to me, the issue here is that AI is threatening to, um, not threatening, but is disrupting the creative industries by you know, um, allowing large language models to write screenplays or to, to create, you know, virtual graphics for video games and so forth. Well, now we have a way to merge these two things together that allows them to grow responsibly. So to me, it's about the convergence of the technologies that I think is really, really interesting. Yeah, I agree. I think of, of all the things you've said, I think that sounds the most interesting. There's a huge debate about where these new la large language models are getting their data, their so-called uh, learning models or guardrails. Uh, ha, ha, is there any evidence of, of Google or OpenAI who own these new platforms? Are they think of thinking of including so OpenAI-like applications so that we know where they get their intelligence so that writers or journalists or artists will be repaid when someone uses their logic 
within these AI systems? I suspect it's something that's definitely happening in OpenAI. And that's because Sam Alton's second biggest project is WorldCoin, which mm. we don't have enough time to talk about WorldCoin. But basically, his view is that um, AI is going to be a big disruptor and um, it's going to make it difficult, harder for people to prove their humanness. And it's also going to maybe cause a bunch of economic dislocation. So what we need is a system where people can prove their humanness and where they might participate in the bounty of a, that AI creates, right? So the way that WorldCoin works is that if you use, it's basically you scan your iris into this WorldCoin device, and then that creates a proof of your existence, which allows you to prove you're a human without giving any information about yourself. And then over time, you know, according to Sam Altman, you're going to earn a revenue stream of WorldCoin from the bounty of AI. So in a way, you're sort of like benefiting from your humanness being used to improve AI indirectly. As it relates to the Hollywood question specifically, I haven't heard anything, but given the fact that he's invested so heavily into this and believes so, so strongly in WorldCoin, I suspect it's something that's conversations that are happening. And this is truly revolutionary. I mean, whether we call it Web3 or something else or the combination of blockchain and AI, it does change everything, doesn't it, Alex? Including new structures for valuing money in a, in a world where perhaps people won't work, what my friend um, uh, calls uh, a, a, a world after capital. Is that um, your friend? Um, oh, gosh. Not Brad Union Burnham. Square Venture. Yeah, not Brad Burnham. Uh, who? Uh, uh, Albert Wenger? Al Albert Wenger's idea. Albert yes. Wenger, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so interesting, um, Albert Wenger. So I should have mentioned it. The first time I ever heard that um, example of, you know, technology like nuclear power not reaching its potential because of a disaster was actually from Albert Wenger. We were having a, a long conversation during the research for this book. I interviewed him and I was it was right after FTX collapse. I'm like, what do you make of this? Is this the end of Web3 as we know it? And he gave me that example. He's like, well, you know, sometimes technologies succeed in spite of of things that go wrong. And sometimes when things go wrong, it, it means they never reach their potential. And we were both like, gee, yeah, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. And that, that was about nine months ago. I have a more optimistic view then than now. But uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a funny coincidence.